Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper with the Public Policy Channel. And today I'm pleased to welcome David Pilling, the Africa editor for the Financial Times. David is the author of The Growth Delusion, Wealth, Poverty, and the Wealth of Nations, uh, published in 2018 by Penguin Random House. David, welcome. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Uh, So before we dive in and talk about the book, I wonder if you might tell uh, our audience just a little bit about uh, you, your background, and perhaps the questions that have led you up to this particular project. Sure. Um, Well, I'm a journalist for the Financial Times uh, newspaper. I've uh, almost exclusively been a foreign correspondent, and I've done that job for about now uh, more than 20 years anyway. I've worked in uh, Latin America. I spent an awful long time in Asia first as the uh, Tokyo bureau chief and then as Asia editor looking after the whole continent. And now I'm uh, the Africa editor. So I've, you know, my job has taken me uh, around the world, um, looking at the world through FTIs, which are primarily sort of economic and business eyes. They're certainly not exclusively. Um, And I've done other jobs as well, writing about business um, and, um, you know, editing in in London, um, some of our content. So I've been, I suppose, what you might call uh, a serious, I I hope, um, financial journalist for most of my um, career, you know, working for one of the most serious um, financial newspapers in the world. But um, uh, because we're invited at the Financial Times to, you know, to think um, critically, I've often just wondered about this um, uh, this number that we take uh, extremely seriously, uh, GDP, gross domestic product, which of course can be sh- shorthand simply for growth. Uh, when we talk about growth in the last quarter or growth in the last year, we're talking about growth of GDP or indeed the economy, because when we talk about the size of the US economy or the size of the Chinese economy, we are using in one form or another uh, gross domestic product as our basis for talking about that. And so really my career at the FT has led me uh, in a sort of not 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 a initially particularly systematic way, but it led me to sort of query, well, what is this thing um, that we talk about? What is this thing that we give so much emphasis to? And to cut a long story short, I think when I arrived in Japan, this really crystallized some of my thinking. Because when I arrived in 2002, and I was in Japan for seven years, uh, Japan had um, not grown in nominal terms for 20 years. Um, So the graph of Japanese GDP was flat. It really, if it were a heart patient, it would have been dead. Um, And, you know, the editors in London, Um, would look at Japan through that prism, the prism of GDP, and think that Japan must be a total disaster. Uh, And sitting in Japan, I knew that Japan had many problems and issues like all countries. But I also knew that that to to think of it as a total disaster or as an economic basket case or as somewhere that had failed economically 
was to really miss the point. Uh, there were an awful lot of things that were going on in Japan that weren't remotely explained by this number that appeared to show that the Japanese economy had stalled and was going nowhere. And I mean, I can certainly go back to that issue and talk, talk to you about that. But that's really what led me, I suppose. Uh, that was the trigger um, for the book, although the book was, a, was, I mean, I read a book on Japan first. Um, so the book still took maybe 10 years to come. But that was probably the, tr the trigger that made me begin to write about some of this stuff for the Financial Times and then to think more broadly about how I could bring what I, what I saw as slightly more rigorous delving into this subject um, to a broader um, audience. Because I, I think that sort of most people out there know that the measures that we use to measure our world don't somehow reflect what our lives feel like. And I wanted to examine the gap between our measurements and what the world feel like, feels like and, to, and, to, and to, to look at that as a way of sort of um, um, analyzing really um, uh, the world we live in and what we think it is. So, uh, so why don't we start with with GDP, with gross domestic product itself? And can you talk a little bit what what the heck is it? Uh, what is it purporting to measure? And maybe sort of uh, uh, to the extent that it's relevant, where does that come from? Why is that the thing that we use as the chief indicator of how well the economy is performing? Sure. Well, GDP for first of all is a flow measure. It measures the flow of income. Um, all the goods and services produced and the value of those goods and services produced over a certain period, a quarter or a year. It's a backward looking measure because we can only know what has been produced. We can't know what will be produced next year. So it's a backward looking measure and it's a flow uh, over a certain period. Now, how it came about is fascinating. And there's quite a lot. Well, there's a, certainly a, a chapter or two about this in the book. Really, before the 1930s, there was no way, not in the modern sense, of talking about the economy. Um, in British politics, for example, the, the, the word the economy was not used in any political manifesto until 1950. No one said we're going to make the economy better um, in a political manifesto until 1950. It's now unthinkable that uh, political parties wouldn't use this phrase on almost every page of them of their manifesto. But if you wind back to the 1930s, there wasn't the language to do that. An economy meant uh, a saving. Um, you know, I'm going to be economical. I'm going to be economical with my household expenditure or economical with the truth. But there was no the economy. So Fr Franklin FDR was um, uh, was elected in 1933, as your um, uh, listeners will know um, very well. And of course, this was after the Wall Street crash, um, the midst of the Great Depression. Roosevelt wanted to spend a lot of money um, as part of what became the New Deal, um, which came in various phases. And so in 1933, he asked a man called Simon Kuznets to come up with a measure of the economy, because in order to spend a lot, he needed to know precisely what had happened. And it's almost unthinkable today, but they didn't really know back then. They had um, indicators like freight car loadings. They knew the stock market was in uh, a bad way. They knew that unemployment had spiked. But they didn't have a single measure to say the economy was this and now it's that. So they sent out Kuznets um, with a team, of, a very small team of five or six people. Kuznets, um, a, a brilliant economist and somebody who took data very seriously. And Kuznets went around asking people um, what they'd spent, what they bought, and then asking producers what they'd produced and what they'd bought in order to produce what they produced. 
And because without going into too technical a detail, GDP is not the measure of all goods and services added up. Because if you think about it, that would be to double, treble and quadruple count um, all the things we make. So if you have a loaf of bread that costs $5, that, that loaf of bread has not contributed $5 to the American economy because there is flour in the bread, which you've already counted at the stage of flour. And there is wheat in the flour, which you've already counted at the stage of the, of the farmer. And then there is electricity because you need to heat the bread and there's labor costs. And um, so at each stage, you need to work out what's called the value added. And that's really by subtracting all the inputs that go into um, the final product. Anyway, Kuznets um, uh, and his team did this remarkable job. And it really was a remarkable job um, in a very short period of time. And in 1934, they produced a document. And the document which was actually to change the world. Uh, and, and his invention has been called one of the great inventions of the 20th century. And even though I've read a book critical, written a book critical of uh, GDP, I would not argue with that assessment. Um, so this great invention was, was um, uh, the title that he gave to it was um, National Income 1929 to 1932. Perhaps economists don't always have a great sense of kind of drama and um, sort of literary razzmatazz. But this was an extraordinarily important document. And within it, it contained the finding that the American economy, which you could now measure, had halved in value. Uh, between 1929 and 1932, that the economy had, sh had shrunk um, by no less than half. And so this gave um, Roosevelt the um, ammunition to spend lots of money. But even at this stage, when you could argue that you know this was the zenith, the high point of GDP, because it enabled Roosevelt to, to come up with this very important policy, Kuznets had several warnings, warnings that I would um, uh, say that we have sort of routinely ignored. One is, this is not a measure of well-being. Please do not confuse GDP with well-being. They're entirely different things, said Kuznets. And I would argue that in the public discourse, those two concepts have kind of elided and that too often, even though economists will tell you, of course, it's not a measure of well-being, but in the public discourse, you know, we assume that growing the economy must be good and must be good for us and must, in the, in the end, be good for our well-being and make us happier. An increase in growth is always a good it's thing. It's always right? a good thing. But <laughs> Kuznets, the man who invented it, said, no, 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 not necessarily. The second thing he said is, don't look at the headline number. The headline number is very crude and tells you, you know, something, but you need to delve beneath. So, for example, I think Kuznets found that even in the Great Depression, the wealthy had um, come out of it in a much stronger position. It really affected poor people more. So um, inequality had grown. Uh, Kuznets was very interested in this finding. Um, but the point that I'm trying to um, make is that Kuznets warned, a headline figure is one thing, but we really need to delve beneath the numbers. Something, again, I would say that we often fail to do. The third thing that Kuznets... Or almost always fail to Almost do, always, right? yes. Well, I'm trying to give people the benefit of the doubt. And um, <laughs> the, the third thing that Kuznets said, and this was in a sense uh, a continuation of his idea that this is not a measure of well-being, he wanted to take off various things, to subtract various things from the GDP measure because he said it shouldn't measure everything. It should only measure things that, um, that we value. So Kuznets, for example, wanted to take out military armaments bombs and guns, 
and naval ships um, spending on the military because he thought that this didn't contribute to human welfare. It might be necessary as a defensive expenditure, but it wasn't, you know, uh, it wasn't adding to the sum total of human welfare. Now we can dispute that. Uh, some people may 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 argue with that, and this was. Kuznets talking at a particular time. But nonetheless, Kuznets would have liked to have subtracted um, armaments. Kuznets wanted to subtract financial speculation. Very interesting in light of the 2008 financial crash, because he thought that financial speculation was basically a kind of useless activity that could be very dangerous and certainly should not be counted um, as part of our economy, which um, is again something that we have absolutely ignored. So just before the financial crash, the banking sector, which was about to sort of bring, in my opinion, kind of mayhem and disaster, was actually contributing about 10% um, to US, uh, of US GDP, um, the, the way that we measured it. Kuznets would have valued it more or less at zero. Um, Kuznets wanted to take away some other things as well, kind of controversial, but interesting to think about. He wanted to take away the roads and the railways that take people to their offices because he saw that as an input into production. What we wanted to measure was the output, what people actually made um, and the services they produced. And he saw the commute, the commute to work as an input, rather like the flour in bread or the wheat in flour. Um, he also wanted to take away advertising. This is very controversial um, because he thought that advertising kind of awoke in people, you know, a desire for useless things that didn't really contribute much of anything and just made us produce more and more and more for no benefit. Now you can see that Kuznets had a particular sort of, you know, um, ideological framework that some of your listeners might respond to and some might not, might not agree with. But the point is that what we count as the economy, what we say is GDP, is not a fixed thing. It's not something that's that's really there that is to be measured. It's something that we have invented. Kuznets, uh, for example, wanted to take out government expenditure. Very interesting, given that that you know governments often drive our economies. Now he lost all of these battles. He lost them in the context of the Great Recession, because obviously you couldn't take out the government, because Roosevelt precisely wanted to spend money to get the economy going again. And you certainly couldn't take out armaments because where were we? We were in the run-up to the Second World War, and GDP became extraordinarily useful, actually, um, uh, in, the, in the Second World War. And some people say it was as important as the invention of the atomic bomb in deciding how much of the economy could be diverted towards armaments when America could enter um, uh, Europe and, and Asia um, uh, militarily. And GDP became very important in this. So Kuznets lost these battles really before um, he began. And, and the story actually goes on, but I'll, I'll stop there for a moment. But that is really how this measure, which, which came out of a particular period, began to become uh, consolidated. And the story does go on after the Second World War and right up to the present date. But there, I mean, there continues to be sort of related problems with the kinds of things that Kutnes identified is that as you, as you point out in, in any number of different kinds of ways, the GDP does not distinguish between good growth and bad growth, right? So if, if there's a horrible oil spill off the coast and that creates enormous employment and the production of machinery and technological innovation to remove the oil, uh, that is arguably no net positive when all is said and done. We've still probably done enormous damage to the ocean, to potential future fishing. Um, can you talk a little bit about both sort of the ways in which GDP 
fails to, in the current moment, uh, distinguish between sort of good and bad spending. Uh, and then if, if you would talk a little bit about there about also the ways in which it fails to think about longer term health and well-being and national wealth or even global wealth. Sure. Well, I think that you've explained the good and bad production um, extremely well. Uh, you know, a, a, an economy where there is more crime that adds to um, uh, GDP because, you know, you need more defensive expenditure, you know, burglar alarms, uh, guns, um, doctors uh, in hospitals. You know, police forces, <laughs> what, doctors in hospitals, what have you. Um, the more you spend on healthcare, and America, of course, spends about 17% of GDP on healthcare, that contributes to GDP. But another way of putting that is healthcare is very expensive in the United States. It's it's um, the United States spends about twice the proportion of GDP on healthcare with as worse most outcomes countries, than other rich democracies. With generally worse outcomes, unless you're very wealthy, in which case healthcare is fantastic. But for the median American, um, you know, the outcome is no better, and in some cases, actually not as good as countries that spend a lot less. Um, so one way of saying, you know. Uh, American healthcare contributes a huge amount to um, American GDP. Is American healthcare is extraordinarily expensive and bad value, value for money. So that's the kind of good and bad production that we just don't. Uh, and pollution, which is a kind of, as you mentioned, the oil spill, but that could be, you know, any number of things, plastic cups that don't biodegrade for hundreds of years, you know, the invisible. Um, what economists called externalities that are involved in production, whether that's you know um, pollution of the air or the rivers or um, um, what have you. But there's another broader point um, which I alluded to just at the beginning, which was when I said that GDP is a flow measure. So I'd just like to take this for a second to the kind of personal. Um, and I sometimes tell this story about, um, and th there is a little story in the book uh, I think um, about Bill the banker. Uh, and Ben the gardener. So Bill the banker earns $500,000 a year and Ben the gardener earns $25,000 a year. Who is richer? Well, clearly um, Bill looks richer, you know, 20 times richer. But I have told you, all I've done is to told you really the GDP of Bill and Ben. I've told you nothing about their underlying wealth. I've told you nothing about their assets. So I may have forgot um, to mention that Ben the gardener actually lives on a $100 million estate, which he inherited from his great aunt last year. He's 20 years old. He's going to sell the estate, move into a small apartment in Manhattan, and live off the remaining $95 million, which he's going to invest. Um, uh, Bill, the banker, you know, is 53. He's about to be fired. He's got you know, a terrible cocaine habit. His bank account is in ruin. Um, his asset position is awful. Um, and it, it's about to get worse. GDP told you nothing about that. Now, think about a, uh, well, think about uh, an individual, for example, um, wanting a bank loan. You know, a, a bank wouldn't dream of just asking what somebody's uh, income was. They would want to know what their assets were, what their collateral was. If we're looking at a company, we would never just say, what's its profits this year? Because maybe it's ran down completely its workforce, sold the factory. You know, It could have done all sorts on the asset side. And if you only looked at the profit and loss side, you'd think the company was doing fantastically well. Uh, so again, you absolutely have to have a balance sheet. Now, with a nation, exactly the same should apply, but doesn't because we have really no measure of the balance sheet of a nation. So if you take an oil producer like, like Saudi Arabia or Nigeria or Angola, 
these countries could and often are merely running down their oil, appearing to be growing very fast. But unless they um, invest that in uh, other forms of wealth, which might be human capital, you know, better universities, a more skilled workforce, it might be produced capital, um, economists call it, which might be, you know, better roads, technology, fantastic ports, airports. In other words, the, the infrastructure that will enable you to produce wealth in the next year and the next year and the next year and the next year going forward. And unless you have a measure of wealth, and the other thing, of course, is natural capital. So, you know, you could be completely running down your oil reserves, as I said, but you could also be destroying your rainforest. You could be plundering your oceans. Um, you could be heating the world up to, to an extent where um, the climate actually changed and you'd um, uh, reap uh, uh, possible impacts of that in the future. Now, this might all sound familiar. This might sound like planet Earth. Uh, and my point is that whatever we're doing to the environment, we don't really measure it in a methodical way. It's not incorporated into our national or indeed our global accounts because the number that we look at is how fast we're growing. We're growing at 3%, that's good. We're growing at 2%, that's bad. We're shrinking, that's awful. Um, but what is happening to these other measures um, that uh, will determine how fast we can grow and what quality of life we have in the years and decades ahead. And we just do not measure that in the same systematic way. And that's one of the kind of, I suppose, pleas of my book that we, that we look at that more seriously. This is the New Books Network policy, Public Policy Channel. Excuse me, I'm Stephen Pimpere. And we've been speaking with David Pilling about the growth delusion, wealth, poverty, and the well-being of nations. Um, so, David, there's there's another category of, of things that often get folded into GDP, and you've made reference to some of these, I think. Um, but uh, GDP doesn't account for things that don't enter into the market. So household labor, the work that, that is done within the home, child rearing, that doesn't factor in. Volunteerism, that doesn't factor in. Uh, nor do things that don't happen through the formal economy, right, through the black market or the gray economy. You talk a little bit about about what that is, maybe the scale of that and the extent to which that distorts our sense of what kind of activi ac economic activity is at work? Sure. Well, um, you know, GDP, as I think we mentioned, you know, is, is pretty much a kind of a guesstimate, but it's a, it's a guesstimate almost exclusively uh, about the uh, part of the economy for which money changes hands. There is actually a big exception to that because, um, uh, we do count uh, people who live in their own houses. So we impute the value of the rent that people who live in their own houses would pay if they didn't live in their own house, because otherwise you'd have very kind of uneven comparisons of countries um, where home ownership was a, was a big factor and where home ownership was not, was not so common. So that, that is to say that there are methods of um, measuring um, bits of the economy for where money doesn't change hands, but we choose not to do it. Um, we don't do it in advanced economies. We don't do it most kind of noticeably in things like, um, as you said, um, home production, as it's called, which could be anything from making your bed, cooking your own meals, to looking after your own children or looking after your 
relatives uh, we don't count, as you also mentioned, um, volunteer work. You may say that's fine. And to some extent, it is fine. We can't tax that. And so the government doesn't have as much need to know what's going on um, uh, inside the house as outside the house. But it does throw up a number of anomalies. Um, so if you think about it, um, for example, in Japan, uh, there is a policy called womenomics that was put in train by the current prime minister, Shinzo Abe. Um, and he was very keen to get women um, out of the home and into the workforce in order to boost the economy. Um, and there were some good reasons for doing this, uh, partly because, you know, the labor force had been very male dominated. And there, is a ve- there are very good reasons for, um, you know, opening up the labor market. And of course, it, it, the labor market should be equitable. Um, uh, you should have equal access to the labor market, whether you're um, a man or a woman, quite quite sort of self-evidently. But nonetheless, there are some interesting anomalies that that throws up. So if you imagine a Japanese um, household in which the women are, are primarily um, taking care of children and looking after um, uh, older relatives, which traditionally has been what a lot of women have done uh, in Japan, then you move them out uh, of their home, and let's just for for the for the sort of purposes of a thought experiment, let's move everybody next door. So instead of being in their own home, they move next door and they look after the children um, of the next door neighbours and the aging relatives of the next door neighbours. Um, but they're paid a wage. Now nothing has changed at all in terms of the work done, um, uh, except Grandpa has no idea who this person is um, uh, looking after him. But from an economic point of view, an awful lot has changed because your economy has expanded, your tax base has expanded, so the government gets more revenue that it can spend on things. Um, but the amount of work uh, has not changed. And I think that this throws up some sort of interesting questions, and they're almost kind of invisible. So, for example, breast milk um, uh, is valued at zero um, in our economic modeling, whereas um, uh, milk formula um uh you know does make a contribution uh now in certain settings especially in the developing world you know formula milk can be very harmful especially if it's mixed with bad water there are very good reasons to encourage women to breastfeed um and yet the kind of economic incentives push in the opposite direction so that's one sort of um uh, uh, anomaly there's another kind of interesting thing that's going on in the developed world, and then I'll move on to the uh, developing world. In the developed world, uh, I mean, all over the world, obviously, the, the, you know, we're moving from analog to digital. Um, the internet um, is becoming more and more um, a factor of our lives and a factor of the economy. But if you think of it um, in this way, imagine that in the past you were booking a flight and a hotel uh, and a holiday. Um, you know, you would go through a travel agent, uh, you would call up a taxi service and they would have somebody um, working in a, an, an office who would call the diff- different cars. One would come to meet you, take you to the airport. Somebody would check you in, um, hand you your ticket, take your, tag up your bag. Uh, uh, now, many of those things are now have now been outsourced, uh, but they've been outsourced to you, the customer. So you may uh, open up a website, book your own ticket, pick your own seat, print out your own boarding pass, order your own Uber. Um, and even as I did 
uh, fairly recently at the airport, tag your own bag and lug it across the airport and put it on a belt. Now, all of that has moved from what we used to call the economy uh, into something that is no longer called the economy, that is like household production. It's like making your bed or looking after your kids, um, which I think is kind of interesting. I mean, we have this productivity anomaly, supposedly, at the moment where you know our productivity is just not going up, even though uh, you know uh, our world seems to be changing and innovating very quickly. And this may partly explain that because things that used to be in the economy are just kind of fading out of the uh, economy. So I think that's something kind of interesting to think about. And there's quite a lot more I, I could say about that. But let's just park that for a moment. Now let's move to um, the developing world. So here, um, you know, in India, for example, something like 80% of the economy is actually outside the market economy. It's in what what sometimes called the gray economy. It may well not be taxed. Uh, some of it may just be under the table. Some of it may be barter. Some of it may be subsistence farming. Uh, very small scale, really below the kind of um, uh, radar. Um, and this can have a, a, a big impact because it, if you begin to measure this part of the economy, um, you can have a sudden sort of leap. So even, even in an advanced economy like Italy, and they began to measure um, in the uh, early 80s, I think, they began to measure the gray economy more systematically. And suddenly they found that their economy was bigger than Britain's. And this was celebrated in Italy as a great event. You know, it's called Il Sopasso. Um, but one of the reasons was they were measuring the illicit economy. You know, I think the British probably joked that, you know, they now, were now accounting for the mafia. Um, and so suddenly the Italian economy was, was bigger than Britain's. Again, the reason for mentioning this, I think, is that, I mean, obviously developing parts of the world are now becoming a bigger and bigger part of the global economy. They're more and more important. But large chunks of those economies are really kind of beyond the um, scope of traditional measures, um, uh, uh, traditional national accounting measures to pick up on. And one very good example of that um, is uh, uh, studies that have been done using satellite um, imagery and the satellites pick up night lights. Um, so if you can imagine the, the Korean peninsula, for example, so you have the South Korean peninsula, which at night is ablaze with lights. And that's really a proxy for all the economic activity going on. If you move north to the North Korean bit of the peninsula, it's virtually dark. There's a, like a little dot in Pyongyang. Um, now, people have done similar exercises in India and, and one that I'm uh, quite familiar with in Kenya. Um, and the results of those are really quite different from the official GDP statistics because they pick up activity that is really kind of invisible to um, the official statisticians who are going around using traditional ways of um, measuring the economy based on kind of household surveys and um, you know asking people questions and extrapolation. Whereas these lights actually pick up a, a genuine proxy of economic activity, which is lights at night. And the, 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 uh, the results are really very different. So, for example, in um, official GDP statistics, Nairobi, the capital, figures very prominently. It can be something like 60% of Kenya's economy. Whereas in the nightlight methodology, that drops substantially to something like, I think it's 15%. Um, and whole areas of the economy that were practically invisible um, to the official statistics suddenly come into literally uh, into the light. Um, so again, 
the, the, the purpose of making this point, I think, is that this number that we take extraordinarily seriously can be quite hazy. And of course, we, we use, you know, for a country like Kenya, its GDP may be used to determine how much it can borrow or what interest rate it can borrow, whether it's a poor country and therefore whether it is um, eligible for certain um, uh, parts of, the, of, of uh, the aid budget and so forth. And yet the numbers that we're dealing with are extraordinarily kind of hazy. Uh, and so I think that's, a, that's something that's, that's, that's certainly worth pointing out. So, so we've got these, this, this very hazy measure, which I think may be even a polite way of characterizing its failures, that nonetheless is imputed with enormous weight and power in all kinds of different ways. Um, so as we work our way toward, toward concluding, can you talk a little bit, David, about what what some other alternatives might be? How else, if we're trying to gauge, well, I guess maybe that's the first question, isn't it? What is it that we're trying to gauge? Is it the overall size of the economy? Is it health and well-being? What should we be measuring? And how might we do that in a way that is a little bit more accurate or authentic? Okay. So there are some people who advocate, you know, sort of basically say GDP's had its day. It's just no longer fit for purpose. I actually don't argue that in my book. Maybe I'm not bold enough, but um, but I think that GDP still tells us something um, uh, important, and it's not a bad proxy for some things, especially as economies are beginning to develop. So for poor economies um, moving to middle-income status, GDP can be a reasonable proxy for what's going on, and certainly a reasonable proxy for the money a, a government can raise to invest in those things you mentioned, health, education, infrastructure, the kind of um, the building blocks of, of development. So I'm not for scrapping GDP, although I could perhaps see a day when GDP kind of faded into oblivion, but I don't think we're, we're at that day yet. I am for uh, a couple of things in relation to GDP, first of all. Um, one is, um, um, and so kind of, you know, when, when we hear on the radio that GDP went up 2.3% uh, last quarter, I think people should say, well, fine, but we know we have a kind of a good idea what is in that, what that's telling us and what it's not telling us. Uh, and without, you know, um, uh, being too um, uh, sort of self-publicizing, you know, if you've read my book, uh, you would, you would, you know, at least be equipped um, uh, to do that. The second is as a result of that, really, just to take it a little bit less seriously in the kind of constellation of numbers. So I would like to take GDP down a peg or two. Um, that, of course, then begs the question, so if you were going to take it down a peg or two, what would you um, have, not in its place, but, but what other numbers might you have to go alongside it? Uh, now, this can go in two directions. One direction is, is the kind of index uh, direction, and that is to come up with a sort of a, a GDP that, that you agree with, let's say, a GDP that um, that, that people are comfortable with that takes out, you know, pollution that that, that takes um, uh, account of uh, what is happening to the natural environment, both renewable uh, and non-renewable resources. That perhaps has some quality of life measurements. Um, and there are some very interesting um, experiments. Uh, there are even, uh, you know, in America, Maryland has something called the Genuine Progress Index. The Canadians have kind of an alternative GDP. Um, 
Now, I see these as interesting in kind of setting a political discussion going because what you put in these numbers really reflects that that's a very political decision. And people will say to me, well, isn't that political? And I say, absolutely it is, because you only choose to measure things that you either want more of or that you want less of, because otherwise there's not much point in measuring them. And of course, we can all disagree about what those things are. I may say I want equality. You may say, well, that's not so important to me. I may say, you know, I want to preserve nature. You may say, yes, but, uh, you know, I, I think growth is more important. I may say, you know, kids are watching, are playing too many video games. Um, so I want to um, uh, account for that. You may say that's nonsense. You know, um, kids should be able to play as many video games as they like. And we shouldn't, certainly shouldn't be measuring that. And then how you weight those various things becomes a bit of a nightmare. Um, so, um, so I'm a sort of, uh, I'm quite skeptical about uh, indexes and indices. I think they're useful in terms of a political discussion. Um, and I have no objection to people running them in parallel uh, to GDP numbers and to discussing and arguing about, about what they reveal. Um, uh, I think that that's fine. But I think that one also ought to be aware that they come with their own set of difficulties and complexities. So I'm more in favor of simple numbers. Um, and some of these simple numbers we already have, some we don't. Um, one, one measure that I would like to see us have that we don't have, uh, not really in a systematic way anyway, is, is a balance sheet. So I may have mentioned this earlier, but, um, but for a company, you have a profit and loss account, which is the kind of flow of income, but you also have a balance sheet, you know, uh, the state of um, its uh, machinery, um, its workforce. You have a kind of uh, a, a reckoning of the balance sheet, which will be um, responsible in the years ahead for producing the flow of profit and loss that comes out of that company. And nobody would ever invest in a company without looking both at a balance sheet and a profit and loss account. For national, for, for national accounting, we really don't have a balance sheet. We don't have something that tells us the wealth of nation, nations. All we have is, say, is something that tells us what profit did our nation make last year, to use the analogy. Um, again, with an individual, if an individual was going to um, borrow money to buy a house, the bank would not only ask what your income is, but they'd ask how old you are, how long you're likely to be able to have, hold that job for, what your qualifications are, what collateral you have because they'd want to know the sustainability of your income in the years ahead. And I think that we need something similar for nations. And the World Bank, interestingly, has come out with some very interesting um, uh, um, methodology. In the past few months, they've been working on it for years and years, but they came out with a kind of a balance sheet of nations of 141 nations over 20 years. And I think that something like that, that began to take a bigger prominence in um, national accounting, would be very useful. So that's one alternative number. Some other numbers I think we already have. So I would measure um, some, uh, I would try to capture um, income inequality. Um, that's because I think it's important. As I say, some people might not, but, but a, a lot of um, uh, studies, both psychological and economic, um, show that people are not, don't feel content or otherwise largely as a result of the, the level of their income, but actually the level of their income relative to others. So once your basic needs are met, um, 
sort of your your sense of well-being is largely determined by how you're doing in comparison to other people. So in very unequal societies, your sense of well-being goes down quite fast. And I would argue that some of the rage that we're seeing, you know, in in Europe and in America, and some of the kind of backlash against um, um, kind of liberal democracy, is fueled by um, a sense of sort of injustice that some people are doing much better. Um, than others. So, you know, it may be fashionable, it may be unfashionable, but I think that's some measure of equality. It doesn't mean absolute equality, but we should track equality. One way of doing that, quite simple, would just be to measure median household income. Um, and that would that would tell you something, I think, quite profound, really. Um, so rather than only saying, I'm going to increase the size of the economy by X, which is really sort of saying, if the, if the economy goes up, then there'll be a trickle-down effect. But I don't particularly believe that, and I think lots of other people don't don't particularly believe that. So you would actually explicitly say what I'm going to target is median household income, which is a, a sort of a proxy for the typical the typical household. Um, and that would have told you in America that the typical household for for decades has really been falling behind, or or, or at best kind of stagnant. Um, yeah. So policies that targeted that explicitly might have been different from ones that um, that merely uh, put growth for its own sake uh, on the sort of hierarchy of numbers. And again, a, a sort of a message of my book is growth is fine, but what do we do with that growth? Growth is the means. It's not the end. So the end is societies um, um, in which we all feel better off in some way. Um, so let's target those things. I mean, you could target um, some form of um, uh, uh, longevity, or, or, or better still, um, healthy longevity. So, in Japan, for example, um, healthy life expectancy is four or five years higher than in America and Britain. Uh, now, that does not necessarily picked up in well, it's not picked up in GDP at all, really. Japan's obviously a fairly wealthy country, but it, it, that doesn't show itself up in GDP. In America, which has been growing. For the last nine years, and in some senses, is recovering pretty well from the financial crisis. Uh, life expectancy actually fell in the last two years. Now, I think there's yeah, there's now there's now been quite a lot a lot of literature on that, and it's not exactly a secret. But it initially took some sleuthing by two economists, uh, Anne Case and Angus Deaton, who won the Nobel Prize for economics. And they had to kind of pick through all the numbers and kind of discover this fact buried deep within the numbers. Now, you could say, well, why did, why did they have to do that work? Surely um, how long we're living and how healthy um, we are um, uh, um, throughout our life ought to be something that we that we kind of measure routinely and put kind of political backing behind. So I would argue that that is a decent number to follow. And there are many others. And there are numbers that we already have some of these. So it's not a, a, a case of coming up with whiz-bang alternatives to GDP. It's really saying um, g- growth might tell us something, but it doesn't tell us everything. And we should prioritize um, some other numbers that are a, sort of a better reflection of our, of our well-being alongside GDP. Yeah. An indication that perhaps when people hear reports saying, you know, the economy did something to perhaps pause and think for a moment and ask what that means and ask what other indicators they might want to also look at if they're trying to uh, to make some determination about their own well-being or their community's well-being or their national well-being. 
I think that's exactly right. That sounds like common sense, but I think we kind of can be bamboozled into thinking the economy is is everything and everything must be sacrificed to make it bigger, whereas it ought to be the other way around. The economy is there to serve us, the people. Um, and uh, and if we turn it that way around, then I think we will not only measure things better, but we have a better chance of creating better uh, societies. Here, here. Um, we've been speaking with David Pilling, who is the author of The Growth Delusion, Wealth, Poverty, and the Wealth of Nations, published in 2018 by Penguin Random House. Uh, anything, anything particularly of interest that you're working on now, David, as we get ready to say goodbye? Oh, I, have, yeah, I haven't really thought about a new book yet, to be honest. Um, I'm now the Africa correspondent of the FT. It's just possible I'll write something from Africa. But I'm also very interested in technology, actually, partly because I'm utterly ignorant of, of, about it in any kind of systematic way. So looking into technology and how that's uh, really sort of, you know, causing upheaval in all our lives is, is, is another thing that, that, I, that I might one day have a look at. Terrific. Well, we will follow your reporting in the Financial Times. Uh, I can't thank you enough for uh, being generous with your time today and talking with us about the gross delusion. Be well. Thank you so much.